Pro Photography Podcast number 207. It is November 1st, 2023. There is a lot to talk about because we have new versions of Lightroom. We have new versions of Capture One. There's stuff going on in film photography and things are getting interesting with AI. We're going to be talking about all that and more on today's show. Welcome to the New Web Pro Photography Podcast, where we talk about what's new, what's old, and what works for professional and enthusiast photographers. Find show notes, videos, and more at simonfx.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Simon. I'll be with you for the duration of the show. And by the way, you can find my new Ottoman Amber preset pack, as well as a bunch of other cool stuff like the Filmus pack, silver, all that. There is a fall sale going on right now, depending on when you're listening to this, if you're listening to it soon after it goes live, and you can take 30% off of everything over on my site at simeffects.com, S-E-I-M effects.com. So head over there, try out the presets and the actions and the workshops and the tools that have been around since the beginning of Lightroom and that we just keep nuancing and refining. And speaking of editing, of Lightroom, of Capture One, if you follow my channel, you've seen some of the recent videos I've done on the Lightroom point color, but I want to bring it up here for you podcast users. The new 2024 version of Lightroom came out. And for you cloud subscribers like me, we download that and we put it to work, right? Well, there's really lots of little updates, but two main features this year. The first being Lightroom's point color. Now, I will link to the videos about point color because it's actually what we've been waiting for in Lightroom. It's where Capture One has had an edge. And also, if you follow the channel, you know I do a lot of comparisons between Lightroom Capture One. I also try to compare others like Luminar Neo and and things like that and look at other options because I'm always a huge proponent of competition. Sometimes people say because I use one or I say one's better that I'm a fanboy, but actually I'm always analyzing and I have been since the first days of Pro Photo Show when all this stuff first started coming out and it was new to the market. I remember when Lightroom Beta came out and we were all talking about it on the roundtables and the podcasts and and a lot's changed since then and and not a lot has changed. What these apps do is mostly the same but we have AI and we have all these tools. Now, it's important when we talk about AI in the terms of editing, like in Lightroom. And now in Capture One, let's kind of merge these news pieces together because the 2024 version of Capture One came out as well. So if you're subscribed to their subscription model, you can also download that update. If, you, if you're if you not, and this is where a lot of people have been jumping ship, besides Capture One kind of falling behind in the past couple of years of Lightroom, being more expensive, and a lot of people jump ship when they really threw away the perpetual license users. Now, if you buy a perpetual license, you don't even get updates for a year, for example. You only get what's there now, and then maybe like bug fixes. But when new features, like the new AI comes out, you don't get it. You have to pay all over again. So basically, they made it that the perpetual license is completely impractical. You have to buy the subscription now in Capture One if you really want to get updates. And that subscription is more than Lightroom and Photoshop combined. So what's the advantage for you? Now, I have a lot of of users uh, and a lot of colleagues, a lot of people that use my presets and stuff that are still using Lightroom 6, for example, because they refuse to go to the subscription model. And I still support that stuff as far back as possible. All my actions currently and all my presets go back to Lightroom 6 before cloud. And they also work on CS5, CS6 before cloud and in terms of the Photoshop actions. I have to do quite a bit of work to try and maintain that. But it's getting to the point where there's some features in the newer stuff, like my my elegant speed masks, the AI presets. Those just aren't going to work in, in Lightroom 6 because it doesn't have those features. Yes, develop nuances and stuff like that. They still work. But now we're getting even more features. Now we have spot color. Uh, we have a new lens blur feature that's kind of like cell phone lens blur. It's kind of cool, but also uh, not perfect. It's still in kind of beta stage, really. The real full feature is this point color because it allows us to do what Capture One has honestly had for years in that instead of just HSL sliders, we can select a color and then adjust the hue, the saturation, the luminance of that color. 
I'll put a link to video rather than try and explain it all over audio. I'll just link it in the show notes over at profotoshow.com or simefx.com slash podcast. They will both take you to the most recent episodes. So head over there and check out all the links I mentioned today, all the show notes, all that good stuff over there on the show notes. But what does this mean? Does it mean that Cap- Lightroom just copied Capture One and and now they're equal? N- not really. What's actually happened is Capture One's had this feature for ages and they haven't really improved it. And this is a common problem with Capture One where people ask for new features and Capture One really doesn't give you that much new. But Capture One just came out with AI tools. Finally, they had to. Too many people were leaving because Lightroom's AI tools are so good. And when I say AI in Lightroom, I'm not talking about like object generation and image generation and stuff that we can do in Photoshop. AI image generation is not photography. And we need to clearly define those lines. In fact, we're going to be talking about that in our main topic today, which is real photos once we finish up with the news. When I talk about AI in terms of editing photos, I'm talking about this is still your real photo. You're just using the AI to make selections so you can refine elements and backgrounds and tonalities and shadows in your photos. Separate uh, your key, your background from your subject, for example. The kind of stuff that we talk about in my Shadow Hackers live workshops. And if you haven't been to one of those, head over to the site over at simefx.com. They're free and it'll be a game changer for you. I So which one's better? Well, I actually did a review of point color versus capture one advanced color and capture and Lightroom came out on top with its point color. And not surprisingly, it's not that capture one advanced color isn't really good. Lightroom now has this point color. You can select a color and then adjust it. It can be used within masks. So we have it as a main develop element and then we can use it within within masking. That's huge because it's been a lack in Lightroom masking is is nuanced color controls. And it's a bit more visual and intuitive. And I would say a lot of things in Lightroom are a bit more intuitive, which doesn't mean Capture One has no advantages. We'll be covering that in my 2024 review. I usually let both of these come out. And then as we come into the new year, I'll do a hardcore side by side of both of these and, and do an objective review of the two. The past couple of years, Capture One users honestly have gotten mad at me about this. And I get I get hammered on it in the comments because I do these reviews and I'm like, look, I use both. I've switched to Capture One before and then switched back, but I actively develop on both because I'm making presets and workshops and all this stuff. So I keep very well versed in both these apps and I use them all the time. Lightroom has objectively been ahead in recent years, except for maybe in in tethering. Uh, I think it's true that Capture One's ahead in that, that it's ahead a little bit in stability and in speed. Lightroom can be a little bit of a of a hog when it comes to resources and things like that. So that could be a very real advantage for you. At the end of the day, I don't get offended by what app people uses. I use the app I like, and I make reviews that try to be succinct and not be wishy-washy, that say what I think. And people can do with those what they want. I've, I've always been that way, all the way back to the, the CS3 days when we were talking about what's new in the latest version of Photoshop. I... I go out and I buy, I pay for Lightroom, I pay for Capture One, I pay for Neo. They're not even sending me review copies. I, I, I'm, I'm too, I'm too unpredictable, I guess, because I'm just going to say what I think. Use what you want, though. At the end of the day, these are tools to make photos, to make real photos, not AI generated stuff that doesn't really exist and then put it on the internet calling it photos. But you're making photos with your cameras, with your digital, with your film. And you're editing those. So use what works for your workflow. Uh, the Capture One AI tool, it has AI selection now. It's not as nuanced as Lightroom in that in Lightroom, you can automatically separate face, skin, background, and it just like instantly does all this. But the Capture One tool does seem to be pretty accurate. It does allow you to select background and subject. So it's a little more basic, kind of like when the Lightroom masking first came out. But they they finally listened. They couldn't ignore it anymore. And they put AI masking in. They've been behind on this for almost, what, two years now since Lightroom's AI tools came out. And this is good because we need Capture One and these other tools. I want to see other tools relevant in the market because only having one or even two options isn't healthy. It's not healthy for the market and for competition. Speaking of competition, let's switch gears here a little bit because there is a film... This this cine still film 
Okay. Cine still makes, or rather they sell film and they have a popular, like a, uh, Cine still 400, Cine still 800. Now these films, Cine still doesn't, to my understanding, actually make any film at all. They're buying cinema film, which you can get in huge rolls. So you buy huge rolls of 35 millimeter cinema film, and then you can repackage those into 35 millimeter canisters and resell them and turn a profit because obviously it's cheaper buying these big cinema f- film rolls in 35 millimeter. And it's the same 35 millimeter that they use in, in film cinema photography and film has become really relevant. It's actually becoming more relevant. The cost of film has gone through the roof and a lot of people, depending on where you're at in photography, you might be like, Oh, I wouldn't want to do film. That's ridiculous. It's expensive. I love my digital camera. That's fine. I shoot a, a lot of film lately. I love the organic feel. I just love getting back to the roots and kind of grounding myself in those natural colors. And of course, I'm using film and studying film and how other people shoot film constantly to make the film as presets, because those are far and away my most complicated and advanced uh, recipes. And so I'm, I'm working on those presets all the time for Lightroom and for Capture One. So I'm not only watching how people are shooting film, but I'm going out and shooting it myself. But that organic experience, I just got a, a new, a new old, uh, Olympus OM2N imported from Japan in beautiful condition. I have well, I have three 35mm film cameras on the shelf right behind me right now that are all loaded and being used on a weekly basis. Um, and of course, I have my large format 4x5. I have a Hasselblad. Those bigger formats I'm, I'm not using as much because film has gotten so expensive, right? We're now paying $15 to $30 a roll. I have a roll of Velvia in my little Canon rangefinder back there right now, and I think it cost me about 30 US dollars for one roll of Velvia. Remember when these things were $5? I mean, this wasn't that long ago. Back in the early pro photo show days, this would have been five, six bucks. Now it's like 30. So it's become kind of a niche thing, almost like vinyl records made a, made a return. And I don't think that's going away in the early stages of like, oh, film is cool. It's kind of like I shoot film, you know, I'm a hipster. But really, a lot of people are going back to film as kind of a kind of a almost like therapy in your photography. There's so many sliders being pushed so far. There's so many new cameras. There's so many tools. There's something calming about taking a vintage camera, vintage lens. It's manual. It's mechanical. And it lets you think about your process. And I've said this for years, going all the way back to when I came back to film. After years of digital and about 2011, I think, and I was telling you guys on the podcast, I kept saying, like, it helps you slow down. It helps you think more. So my photography, as I've always said, gets better for this. But this Cine Steel film, they repack these films. Now, it's pretty well known that they're buying these rolls of, of cinema film, right? And then they're they're apparently modifying it some way. I believe they remove the halation, the anti-halation layer from the film. And th- so they are apparently doing some work on it. And then they're they're calling it their own film. They're giving it a different ISO than the cinema film. So it might be like a, a 250D cinema film, and and they sell it as a as a 400D. So when it's all said and done, they do get a bit of a different look from the cinema film that they're starting with. But they're not making this film. And there's a huge scandal right now with this company because they came out and other people started doing this, right? They sell a lot of this film. They make a lot of money on it. They move a lot of products. It's pretty popular among the film shooters. I actually have a roll in my camera right now that I was that I was testing with of, of Cine Steel 400D. Will I buy another one after this? Well, that's that's another question. But they started going after other people that were selling 800T. So they were buying rolls of cinema film as well and doing whatever they did to it and selling it as 800T. Now, they didn't steal the Cine Still logo or anything like that, but Cine Still started going after them for trademark because somehow, by some ridiculous means, Cine Still got a trademark on the term 800T, which stands for 800 speed tungsten. Now, this is this is a definition. You could trademark the Cine Still brand name and logo in relation to film. Sure, that's how a trademark works in most places in the world. But the idea of being able to trademark the designation was simply a man- manipulation of the trademark patent and trademark system, which is not that difficult to do in the U.S. It's a pretty broken system. And so they made this 800T trademark. Interestingly enough, 800T is not something they invented. There was other films. There's even another cinema film 
from years ago from Kodak that was 800T because it was an 800-speed tungsten film. That's what 800T stands for. So Cine still started going after these these guys and saying sending them letters. Well, they claim that first they sent them emails, that they weren't aggressive. They haven't sued anybody. So what happened is these companies, they started coming out and saying, hey, Cine still is, is harassing us. They're threatening to sue us. And obviously they were telling their side of the story. So then Cine still came out and they did press releases and they say, we're not actively suing anybody. We didn't even send cease and desist letters until later. We didn't threaten anyone. Well, that's not actually true, Cindy Still. If you send a cease and desist letter, that is a threat of legal action. If you even send an email saying, hey, you have to stop doing this. You have to stop using the term 800T. You can't say 800 tungsten. And so this pissed people off. And a lot of their users, a lot of videos on YouTube and stuff about this. Because frankly, and this is, I think, what this comes down to. You can fall on either side of this. But most people are like... They're just trademark trolling, right? They're they're trying to prevent competition. And so people that are film enthusiasts, we want there to be more films. We miss films like Natura. Now there's no Fuji 400H. I mean, there's a lot of lack. There's very few companies making film anymore. And a lot of the new, the quote, new films come out are just repackaged cinema or other films that are coming out. So like there needs to be open openness and competition for this to grow, right? Not anti-competitive practices like, oh, you can't say 800 tungsten. Now, if someone's blatantly violating their brand and trying to make it look like it's their film and selling counterfeits, that's a different story. But it doesn't appear that any of that was happening. YouTubers were talking about this film, YouTube channels and stuff like that. And people were pissed. People were like, I'm not buying their film anymore. This is ridiculous. We need open practices that are working together to build the film community, not that are trying to shut down and stifle competition. And so then Cindy still comes out with his big long letter that I'll link on their post that is basically just fluff. It's just them saying, oh, it's not our fault. We were trying to be nice, blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the day, just excusing that they have to defend their patents. Cindy still, you have no right to the term 800T. I, I'm not necessarily talking about legally in court, although they would probably lose if it actually went to court. And the patent, if somebody actually fought them on it, the patent would, the, excuse me, not patent, it's not a patent, it's a trademark, would probably get taken away. And they probably know that. Um, but they don't have a right from a rights perspective. They might have a technical right from they manipulated the trademark system, and so they have the right on paper. No one's buying it. No one's buying what they're saying. And what they've done, they've made people want to move away from their company. Instead of being a member of the community, their company is, is seen as a villain. Now, they may move past this, but I think this is a really good reminder. And Cine still, if you're listening, we're sick of companies like you. We're sick of companies that are anti-competitive. We're sick of, of phones that we can't repair. We're sick of of EULAs and license agreements and, and companies suing people for repairing things and preventing us from getting parts. And I don't know if you guys follow like Lewis Rasmussen or right to repair channels and things like that. And I know I'm crossing into different territories here, but we're in a world where it's crazy. The world is a mess. Things are tough. We don't need more corporations creating conflict, making it so we own nothing. Everything, it's getting to the point where even our cars can be turned off by firmware updates. People are buying phones that are that are not in the right market, and Samsung is pushing firmware updates and disabling their phones. These are things that are violations of consumer rights, and I'm not saying it's a violation of consumer rights to defend your trademark, and I'm not a trademark lawyer, but... The response from the film community has been resounding on this. And I just want to say this isn't really just about film. We're tired of this from Samsung, from Apple, from Sony. If we buy a product, we want it to be ours. If there's an innovation, we understand that the person who creates the innovation should benefit from it. But Cine still didn't create an innovation. They didn't invent a new film. They don't make film. They essentially repackage film. And then they try and obscure it. What's going on? And when you're talking about normal film, right? If you go buy Portrait 800, it's not a secret what it is. It's not a secret that Kodak makes it. You can download the data sheet and see all the specs and the curves and all this stuff on it. Not a lot of secrets. Obviously, they're not giving away their formula, nor should they have to. But that doesn't mean someone else can't make an 800 film. We need competition. And it's getting harder and harder to compete in a world where only the big dogs have stuff, right? People sometimes think, going back to the Lightroom topic, that because I use Lightroom and I, I make videos a lot for Lightroom, that I'm a Lightroom fanboy. No, 
I I was against the Adobe Cloud model. I railed against it. I still don't like it. I don't like how much power Adobe has in the industry. And so I want the little dogs to rise up and be competitive. And it's hard, getting harder and harder because the tools are getting more advanced. The AI, the, the algorithms, all this stuff, the development costs more and more, right? It's even the same in the video game world. Producing AAA video game titles costs hundreds of millions of dollars now. Being an indie like startup is hard to compete. I know I'm crossing over into a lot of different things here, but I think what really pissed people off is what Cine still did is they treaded into the territory of being the bully, of anti-competitiveness and stifling the market instead of letting us create openly and giving the user what they want. I think this is where Capture One has really lost a lot of market share. I've seen a lot of people that went to Capture One because they were tired of Adobe, and now they've gone back. Adobe and Photoshop together are now cheaper than Capture One. Capture One doesn't listen. People ask for feature fixes and updates for years and years and years, and they don't do it. They just do other things that they can try and sell as new features to sell you new versions. They're not engaged with photographers as a whole. Now, does that mean Adobe is, is really good at this? No, and this is the problem we're facing in all of these tech markets. These companies have become so huge, they listen less and less. And that's why it's important, I think, that we that, that we do get upset, that we do change brands when we get fed up. I left Apple for Android because I was tired of them stifling progress. They didn't want to put a USB-C port in because they wanted to sell the Apple Lightning port. And and here I am trying to transfer 4K videos, and it takes eons. And I said, you know what? This, in combined with your anti-right-to-repair policies, I'm done. But now you look at Samsung. Samsung's not really any better anymore. So now I'm like, well, maybe I should switch again. And, and I might because I'm sick of companies doing this. I'm sick of the idea that you don't own your car, your camera, your phone. And I don't know how you guys feel about this. But I get pretty passionate about this kind of stuff. And so I know a lot of you don't use film, and maybe the CineSteel story isn't that relevant. And CineSteel is not like a super Fortune 500 company. They're just the larger company in in this kind of market, right? But I'm just kind of connecting dots here of how people are feeling. And I feel like the industry is getting tired. The industry that is the people in the industry, not the corporate side. They want control. They want devices that we throw away. They don't want devices that we keep using or that we repair to preserve parts, to preserve the environment. They want us throwing them in the trash or returning them to them so they can get them off to market the market and sell us new ones. There's a lot of shysting and scamming going on with these big tech companies as well in, in terms of like you need to buy a new phone every year. And they're trying to prevent people from repairing the phones. They're trying to make up security nonsense that isn't actually real to say we're protecting the consumer because they don't want the iPhone 14 being repaired for the next 10 years because they want to sell the new one and they know that it's not actually that much different. Okay? People are pushing back and you're seeing this more. That's why the new iPhone 15 has USB C because consumer rights protections in, in, the EU said, you know what? No, you have to put USB-C on this. We're not tolerating this anymore because it was so obvious. And I would say Apple was the biggest offender. It was so obvious that this was all about just selling more accessories and being anti-competitive and screwing over us, the consumers. It was ridiculous. Now, you can buy the new iPhone 15 and they still throttle the USB-C unless you buy the Pro Max. I believe if you buy the normal 15 they still give you USB-C connection and charging, but I believe, and I could be wrong on this, my understanding is that they still only give you USB 2 speeds. They're blatantly trying to use technology that is commonplace and that exists and that is not a cost issue. It's not a security issue just to make us spend more money. And and I don't support those kind of practices. I think that these companies need to innovate. And if you go back to Apple back when Steve Jobs was in charge... It was always about innovation. Some people loved Apple. Some people hated them. But I had mostly Apple products in those days because when a new product came out, there was something different. And there was innovation. It wasn't just like, oh, subscribe to our new cloud service. And a lot's changed on this front. We need more competition in software and photography all over the place. It's actually looking like there was an article on Petapixel about this of DSLR cameras may be going away because 
mirrorless cameras, most of them can be charged by USB-C. And in the EU, I think, is it 2026 or I forget the year, but very shortly, all these devices being sold have to be USB-C compatible. And most of the DSLRs do not charge. And I know people like DSLRs, do we still use those? They, they are still there. I switched to mirrorless years ago and didn't really look back. I do still have a Canon 5D Mark II infrared back there. That's a DSLR. But I think in general, mirrorless is, is far more practical than a DSLR. But that doesn't mean some people don't need them. There's probably a lot of you listening out there that still use DSLRs, and the photos that result out of them are just fine. This might, it might just be used as the final nail in the coffin to not re-engineer the chargers and the ports and things like that and just, just axe the DSLRs. And that was kind of Petapixel's theory on this. Not that DSLRs are completely useless, but that they, in general, don't even have this integrated in their design. And so the times are changing. I'm not a big fan of, of government laws to fix things because, honestly, they usually don't. But we have companies like Apple and like Samsung and these big companies, these tech companies that are and Sony, right, that, that, that if allowed to get away with it, will do such anti-consumer things that they'll just keep screwing us over. So what do you guys think about all this? Go to the show notes, ProPhotoshow.com, and, and just let let me know how you feel about all this and how it ties in. If you have a, a opinion, I think we're good on the news. Let's go into our main topic for the day, and that is real photos. Now, I've been talking about this a lot, but it keeps coming up. The AI stuff is always in the news, and all this stuff is is happening, and I'm not the only one noticing, and I know you guys are noticing too, and we're starting to wonder, like, is photography relevant? Where's it going? Everything's being created by AI. We need real photos in our society, in our history. The real photos are important. I'm not saying we don't edit, that we don't say, I use this film or that film. I use this preset or that preset. I edit in Photoshop or I edit in Luminar. I'm saying that the photo is real. And I don't even replace skies on my photos. I'm not saying it's bad. But if you go out and you say, this is a landscape of Mono Lake, and you put a sky that has nothing to do with Mono Lake and would not be seen at Mono Lake, it's an artificial creation. It doesn't mean it's bad or that it's not a piece of art. Is it a photo at that point? Now, I know this debate's been raging ever since Photoshop, maybe before. With AI, it's taken to a completely different level. And we're seeing the abuse of real photos, or rather not real photos, and using AI photos. I don't think I can make any greater example of the abuse of this. There's, there's always been like, you know, look at this landscape or that I took, and you're looking at this and like, that moon is not real. And there's a lot of people posing online as they make photos and portraits, and there's so much fakery going on. I'm not just talking about a filter where they retouch the skin. That's been going on since the negative days when we retouched the negatives. And I've seen airbrushers and retouchers, like back when I was, was mentoring under the late Ken Whitmire, and he had these airbrushers in, in the in the studio, and they would do amazing things. It was like Photoshop. And so it's not like Photoshop invented the idea of retouching a photo, but I'm not talking about retouching. I'm talking about photos at this point that aren't even photos, right? And you could say, well, these montage photos where you cut them all up, those weren't really photos either, but they were based on photos. And I have a problem with anyone saying, implying, saying or implying that something is real when it's not. If something is a photo, this is a photo of a place, it should represent that place, in my opinion. Now, if you're saying, this is my digital art, this is my painting of a place, you can do whatever you want with that place. It doesn't have to be true to life. It can be fantasy. It can be creative license. And a photo, of course, can be creative license also. I realize this gets into complicated territory, but I don't think with artificially generated images, it does get into complicated territory. Um, I've, I've mentioned it a few times on the show, but I'll just say it outright. These are not photos. They weren't taken with cameras. They weren't composed by people. These are databases being sewn together to make digital images. So you could say these are digital art. When you look at the conflict in the Middle East right now that's happening, and you look at all the horrible things that are happening on both sides of the border and without getting too much into politics or anything like that. I feel like we always see the same thing 
where politicians and powerful people end up using innocence as cannon fodder. And I think these are very important topics as photographers because photographers record history. And I'm including video creators in this too. When I say photography, that's a form of photography as well. We record history and it is really important to record history. As someone who at times is an, is an activist and has recorded things not for the artistic value, but to document things. I, I am a, a photojournalist as well. And while as a photojournalist, you want to document things in a creative way that tells your story, there's sometimes when you're just documenting things, you just need to document it. But ultimately, what's really important, whether we're creative photojournalists doing a story or whether you're just a guy on a street with a blurry cell phone camera capturing something that changes history, it's important that we know when things are real. Now, we're seeing things come out like the content credentials. Content credentials is essentially an open standard, and I'll put some links to this in the show notes. Uh, Leica just came out with a camera that has content credentials built in. Content credentials is in Photoshop. It's in the cloud version of Lightroom. For some reason, they haven't put it in Lightroom Classic yet, but I would imagine that'll come soon. What content credentials actually is, and I thought this was really interesting. I didn't know about it until recently, and I think you should know about it because I've talked in recent episodes about, hey, we need a way to verify. I've said, hey, oftentimes if I'm shooting street photos, I'll take a video on the cell phone. Sure, it's to upload and to make YouTube videos and to put on my stories, but it's also to actually show you guys, hey, this this was actually here. This is actually real. It's not AI generated. Because in the Middle East conflict, we see all these pages that just utilize these kind of things for views and clicks and likes uh, and to generate revenue. And we're seeing these photos of like children holding out a flag to soldiers on the on the on the border front or something like that, right? A lot of those kind of themes. And everybody's like, oh, this is amazing, or oh, this is so sad. And these things get massive amount of reactions. And they title these things, and I've been seeing these the past couple of weeks like crazy, where it's a photo, and I look at it, and I'm like, that's an AI-generated image, but most people don't know. And it literally says, like, photo of the week on the conflict. And people are commenting and fighting and arguing and, and crying and, and having opinions on this. Now, is there anything wrong with making a painting, an illustration, a digital art piece that represents a feeling you have? Uh, is No, but that's different than journalism. That's different from saying this is a photo. And what they're doing with these is very unethical. They're going out. They're making digital generated images that essentially cost them nothing. They're going to the front lines of nowhere. They're not showing what real people are doing and what's actually happening and real suffering and real love and real caring and real helping and real brutality. They're not journalists. These are people sitting behind computers user utilizing things like Dolly and things like that to create AI generated images of war. And then share those as if they are photos to get the engagement. And they get a lot of engagement because, you know, they, t they take on themes that are very important to people right now and that are very important to the current state of the world. And so we've had AI images in force for, what, a year now? And they're, they're already being abused on a massive level, level. So what we have is fake journalism using AI, fake AI war journalism. And somebody might say, well, this isn't a news story. They're not actually saying it's real, but they're doing everything but saying it's real. When you imply that something is real, photo of the day from Gaza, it's not the photo of the day. It's not a photo at all. And people need to know that. If it's a page about a topic and they want to make AI generated art, that's fine. But the fakery isn't. It's not journalism. It's not photography. And so things like content credentials, what this is doing is it actually gives a chain of like a hierarchy, a chain of providence, I guess you would call it, where when you have content credentials on a photos, it has in the metadata and it's locked. You can't just go and change it. Now, I know we're talking about the digital world. Somebody will find a way to hack this. It's always a battle, right, to see if something's really real. But I think aside from saying, oh, here's a video, here's me in this place, content credentials is really interesting. I hope we see it in Lightroom soon. 
So get on that Adobe. I hope we see it in Capture One. I hope we see it in other areas because areas where we're editing these photos, even if it's not journalism, right? Even if it's just a landscape photo, those of us who are actually legitimate photographers and want to be transparent, I don't mind showing, yeah, this was my raw photo. So what Content Credentials does is depending on how it's displayed, you can it's embedded in the metadata. So if, if the page or the app you're viewing it in supports it, let's say it was on Instagram or Facebook, there's a little content credentials icon in the corner where you can actually click right there and you can see the content credentials metadata and you can expand that and it shows that photo. It shows where it started, what it looked like, like thumbnails, right? It's not giving away your originals. It shows like this is what it started. This said it was done in Lightroom. This said it was done in Luminar. This said it was done in Photoshop. That is if these apps support this, but it also shows things like this was generated by AI. It will show things like this photo is a combination of photo A, B, and C. So you can see that it's a montage. This is this could be really important because now if, if apps like Instagram, like Facebook, like Vero, like, like Flickr, right? If this becomes norm... Then you can click and you can see this within the app. You don't have even have to open the metadata, right? So if a photo has this in it, you can look it up. But if if wherever it's being displayed supports it, you can just look, click the little icon. And I'm totally willing to have these in my photos because I'm not a, I'm not afraid of people seeing how I did my photos and where they came from, right? Obviously, they might see a flat raw file and say, "Wow, he edited that a lot." Yes, because it was a flat raw file. You guys know how that works, but it's a real place. It's a real thing. It's a real event. Obviously, I'm going to edit a beautiful landscape or portrait more than I would something that's documenting a historical event. But with content credentials or something like it, but we do need a standard on this. We can see that path. And I've mentioned before, like what AI is actually doing, and this goes is right back to our main topic of the day. What AI is actually doing is it's making real photography more important. I think it's actually even going to make film photography more important because a negative or a slide, it's like you can look at it. Yes, there's ways to retouch it, but not not like we have now, right? You have that true source file, which is another reason I always shoot in RAW. I want people to be able to go back and say, no, this is the unedited RAW file. Here's the true file. Is there ways to modify a RAW file? I'm sure somebody can, but it's not like you can just go in and edit a raw file because when you edit it and then save it out, it's it's no longer the raw file, right? You can you can export it as a DNG, but an original raw file from a camera, I think, is kind of like a negative. But with this content credentials, there's a trail of evidence of where this photo's been, or is it even a photo at all? And if it's not, I'll just say this is an AI generated image. We need to know that because. Most people can barely tell the difference now in these photos. Those of us that are photographers can usually look and we look at the hands and the scenes. Like, first of all, you can suspect based on the kind of page. It's kind of these spammy type pages that are clearly just doing things for clicks. Then you can look at just how perfect everything is. Then you start to notice the hands. I can usually tell very quickly, but it's still work. And this is for those of us that are experts in photography. Normal, normal non-photographer people that, that are not in this industry, they don't. They don't know. And it's a big deal. And there's no greater example of that than what's happening with the world conflicts right now and how those are being abused. So fake journalism isn't okay. We do have a right to know whether an image is real or whether it's fake. And we need a system to do that. And all of this, going back to what I've said for months now, is that because of all this, people are more suspicious because they know about this AI. They've seen it in the news. They've seen it happening. And the more time goes on, they're going to realize more and more that they're being duped and that this stuff is fake. That's not a real news story. That's not a real place. That's not a real event. And so the, the disbelief is increasing. We have this need to, sus to suspend the disbelief with real things. The suspension of disbelief is essentially convincing people that something's real and as they get more and more informed and educated and skeptical we need a better and better system to say no this is real that's not great how about we can just click on it right in the feed and see and we can verify that now does that mean that can never be manipulated no 
there's always some some way that somebody's going to manipulate and hack and, and use something for nefarious purposes. And then the people that manipulate and hack for good purposes are going to come and try and find a better way to combat that. That's how the world works. That's especially how digital works. But I think that's been going on since long before digital cameras, that concept. So I, this is kind of heavy stuff for pro photography podcasts, but we're photographers. We're journalists. AI can be very useful, and generating AI images can be fun and creative, and yes, it can be art, but it's not photography. And when you capture a wedding, when you capture an event, when you capture a portrait, a landscape, a place, a party, people people want to have a feeling that that's real. The feeling they get from that is not artificial. And so real photos... We see all this stuff changing, and everybody's like, oh, it's all AI now. Everything's going AI. We're not even going to need photographers. And obviously, AI is going to affect the market because certain things and can be generated artificially, and you don't have to pay for a photographer. But I think when it comes to people and places and events in particular, real photography in the coming years is going to have more value than ever. And, and keeping it real keeping it authentic, keeping it natural, if you will. doesn't mean we won't edit, we won't use filters. That's not really what I'm talking about. Even with film, when you chose your film, it was basically like choosing your preset, right? So now I can shoot on RAW, and then I can go into film as presets, and I can say I want Portra, I want this, I want Agfa, or I want something completely different, I want a black and white mix. And, and I've spent years doing this. You guys... Many of you use my products for doing this, but it's one thing to process and get a look that's aesthetically what you like. That's why we chose different films. That's why you chose Portrait 160 over 400, over four, over Fuji 400H, over Velvia, right? You got a different aesthetic, but they were all real photos. They were real things. They were real places. They were real events. And I think that's important. I think real photos are the future of photography. Doesn't mean AI is not going to be huge and who knows maybe it'll it'll take over the world but as it does you need to be able to capture that conflict on real photos i actually like having a real truly mechanical camera that has no batteries it's my prepper camera right i can i can use that anywhere and take black and white film and develop it in the corner somewhere it doesn't actually require a cloud it doesn't require a software subscription Real things, just like people want, are becoming more aware, back to our news topics, they're becoming more aware that companies and corporations don't want them to own things. They're basically renting them because as soon as they turn them off, they stop sending firmware updates, they disable them, they decide to change because it's all cloud and they decide to start charging you monthly for it. These things can change and this is happening. This isn't hypothetical. It's companies charging people for features on their cars. It's cell phone companies disabling cell phones that people legitimately paid for because they've decided to change a policy. This is important stuff. So just like our rights as consumers, as humans, as people who pay and should have a right to own the thing we paid for are important, our right to be able to know what's real and what's not in an AI world is also important. Being able to have a real photo is important, knowing whether it's real. And as photographers, making real photos, I think, falls on us. And it's a very important responsibility, not only with the technology and possibly with things like this content credentials, but also as image makers to be implicitly honest about what we're what we're creating. It's fine to do digital art. It's not fine to lie either directly or indirectly, when you know that it's not true and that people think that it is. These are big themes. I'm sure there's stuff we need to come back to. I'm certainly going to be looking more at this, this content credentials and anything that comes out like it and keeping you guys informed. But I also want to know what you think. So head over to the comments over at ProPhotoShow.com of, of this week's episode or send me an email, ProPhotoShow at gmail.com because I just I, I think we should talk about this. It's kind of new. I've, for the past couple months, been thinking about it a lot, 
talking about a little bit here, and I thought today we're going to do a topic of real photos. I'm not saying none of my opinions will change or that I have all the answers here, but I've thought about this quite a bit, and I want to know what you think. Okay. I don't think we went too long. This show so far hasn't gone too long, and I think I'm going to wrap it up with just a simple pick of the week that I can link for you guys in the show notes, because our main topic today gave quite a bit, both ethically and photographically, I think, to think about, and it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. My pick of the week this week is actually not a photo item. My pick of the week is something that I bought about a month ago, and I've been using it all the time, and it's the Steam Deck. The Steam Deck is a gaming device, and you might be thinking, well, why? Why are we talking about this on a photography podcast? It's actually a computer. You can browse on it. You can. It, it's an. It's a Android. It's a Linux rather based computer that is made by Steam, which is a company that sells PC games, and so you can play PC games directly on this with the way that they've designed it, right? But you can also exit that app and use this like a Linux computer, connect it to a monitor, a TV, etc. So you could use it for other things. It's not a superpower beast that you're going to want to try and figure out a way to run Lightroom on, and Lightroom isn't on Linux anyway. But what this is primarily used for is gaming. What's really interesting about it is it's essentially an open system, because you can also play games on it that are not from Steam. It's not like a Nintendo or a PlayStation where you have to buy their games. These are PC games that are made for Windows, and the way that the the main software for gaming in this is designed, it will play these Windows games. Virtually all PC games, there are some exceptions, right? So they have kind of a compatibility level that they rank games. But you can play games from Galaxy of Games, for example, things like that. Now, why does this matter? As photographers, we're always on the go. We're always going places. Maybe we're waiting for a client, things like that. I actually like being able to relax and play a video game. But in front of a console, it just doesn't happen that much. I like story-based games like like Horizon, like Hogwarts Legacy, things like that. Maybe occasional some city-building games, some battle-with-friends kind of games. The, that's not really the point. The point is, what people don't realize about this is, whereas a console, you got to have kind of your relaxing time and sit in front of the TV. This Steam Deck, it just holds in my hand. It's got like a 7-inch screen built in and all the joysticks and everything. So it's made for gaming. It's not a tablet. It is the controls, although you can connect external keyboards, external controls. It has USB-C, all that kind of stuff, built-in battery. But you hold this in your hand like you would a portable gaming device, except for you're playing full PC games on it. Now, I don't. if you're a gamer, you probably know about it. I don't need to get on all the technical stuff. But I quit doing games on my phone a long time ago when they switched from being, oh, you pay $5 for a game and you use it forever, to basically being these pay-to-play gambling games or, or subscription models where basically to proceed in the game, you have to buy coins and then gamble those and hope you get a good item and things like that. And there's actually, this goes back to some of our other themes today, there's quite a few videos talking about this on YouTube where the modern mobile game is basically just gambling games targeted at children and teens where they spend oftentimes thousands of dollars just to win. To me, as someone who's a little more old school and remembers when games were actually games and you played to win, it wasn't about constantly sending money back to the mothership, I don't have any interest in those kind of games. And so console games tend to be you buy, you pay a lot for the game, but you play the game. PC games are the same, but you tend to pay less for them and there's a lot more available. The Steam Deck plays PC games, but what it does amazingly is when you're sitting in the car waiting for a client to show up, you can just turn it on. You can be in the middle of a game, not a mobile game, but a full PC game, and just turn it off when they show up. And an hour later, you want to take a break and you finish your session, you turn it on and it's literally just like turning your phone on. It comes out of sleep and it's right there. You're not waiting five minutes to load a game or any of the things that don't really fit in with the busy schedules we have as photographers. This kind of sounds like an ad, but it's not at all. There's no sponsors. Uh, This podcast is supported by you guys that support my products over at SimeFX.com, my presets, my workshop. I just am putting this as pick of the week because as photographers, 
if you enjoy taking a break, relaxing, playing a game, and also having a device that, yes, you can use for other things because it is a, a Linux computer in your hand. But the main thing you get this for is to do some gaming on. And you can do it and have this in your bag, in the backseat of your car, sitting in its case. And you're like, hey, I'm at the park. I'll see you guys in 30 minutes. I'm just going to kick back and wait. You press it, and three seconds later, you're right back where you started off. That's actually one of the biggest features that people realize when they buy the Steam Deck, and I didn't. I was thinking, oh, I'm going to buy the new PlayStation, but I don't actually get to play that much, so maybe I should spend that money elsewhere. I've got other priorities. Then the price of this came down. It's, it's only about $400 for one of these. I'll put a link from my Amazon affiliates if you guys want to click through that link and, and support me from that, but you can get it directly from Steam as well. And there's a lot of specials and stuff, and it's dropped in price quite a bit now that they're actually available. This isn't expensive like a gaming laptop. This is about a $400 device, and now you have this and you can play any game on it. But the main thing is the convenience factor. That's why I picked it for our pick of the week as photographers, because I know the situations that we often find ourselves in. I know what it's like to sit there and it's like, I need to wait 30 minutes for the light. I have a client on the way, right? I have 10 minutes of downtime what can I do to relax? Because I just need to take a breath. And it's that easy. And that's actually really cool. And I think that's really healthy for us as people that are on the go. And I think that those of you, if you have any interest in games at all, it's something that you're really going to like because it's a, it's a desktop gaming experience. And you can actually, yes, connect it to a screen as well. But that's not usually how I use it. I just hold it in my hand. I use it like I would a mobile gaming experience, but I'm playing desktop games that I'm actually interested in. Okay, that's the pick of the week for this week. A little bit off base from normal, but I think you guys will really like it. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, found it interesting, found it relevant. I think we touched on some important topics. We don't always get that in depth on things, but there's some crazy stuff happening in the photography world right now. What do you think about real photos? What are you doing to kind of draw the lines for yourself? Let's talk about it in the comments over on the Facebook group. All this stuff will be linked over at ProPhotoShow.com in the show notes, as well as links to the Facebook group. You can leave a comment right there on the blog, or you can send me an email as always at ProPhotoShow at gmail.com. And of course, as I mentioned, head over to simeffects.com on the homepage to see the latest projects I'm working on, the latest filters and presets and actions and all that kind of stuff. And if if you something catches your eye, well, I do appreciate the support. We make really good stuff over there to help us excel as photographers, but also in a way that, that lets us make real photos. All right, you guys, peace, stay safe, keep on shooting, and let me know what you think. We will see you on the next show.